Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavigan. And today we're going to be taking an in-depth look at Motley Crue's album, New Tattoo. So three years after Generation Swine comes out, uh, Motley Crue is dropped by their record label. They have they own the rights to all their masters, which is fairly unusual in the music biz. So they have their own label, Motley Records. They re-release all of their material on that, including a sort of odds and ends album, um, Supersonic Relics and or Supersonic and Demonic Relics, um, Motley Crue Live, Entertainment or Death. Um, but it is not until July 11th, 2000, that the Mike Klink produced new studio album comes out. Uh, it was recorded in Cello Studios mm -hmm. in Hollywood and Can Am Studios in Tarzana. Mike Klink, you may know, uh, his biggest claim to fame is that he was the producer of Appetite for Destruction, which is arguably the greatest Sunset <laughs> Strip hard rock heavy metal album of all time. So it's, it's no surprise uh, why he would look like he would be the perfect producer. Uh, on a Motley Crue record. So, overall impressions of New Tattoo, John? I don't like it. I mean, I, I, it sounds, it is my least favorite Cheap Trick record. It's obvious that that's where it's influenced from a lot. Um, I don't, I, there was nothing there that really, I mean, there was stuff that, that was there that stood out a little bit, but nothing amazing. It's, um, it's weird to think about that they're in this the the song the um the songs all seem to be love and sex songs you know what i mean which i would i was thinking they were sort of moving away from but at the same time maybe they thought that's not what people want from us so they sort of made you know this album um and then there's of course the obligatory screw you record company song on it and um that kind of stuff so i i I, I'll be perfectly honest. It felt a lot like homework listening to this. I mean, there was definitely like mm -hmm. parts of it where I was like, yeah, this really rocked, but it didn't really super stand out to me. I, I probably will never go back to listen to it again. Fair enough. Mike. Yeah. I think, um, you know, for, for me, there's, you know, a high positive and high negative. Uh, you know, there's probably three songs I think that I really like on the record and the rest of it, you know, just kind of, mediocre songs um and you know in terms of the production you, you would think that you know a guy like mike clink would have been you know, the guy to go to for production but overall the the record itself kind of sounds like there's like a blanket over the speakers in a way it's a weird mix um yeah yeah but i mean other than like a few tunes on the record and i like the cover tune um the, the rest of it you know I, I could do without okay this album to me demonstrates, I think Motley Crue is a case study of being a band where the sum of its parts is greater than the individuals that are members of the band. And Randy Castillo is a fantastic rock drummer, mm -hmm. but you really do feel the fact that Tommy Lee is not a part of this. There's something about Tommy Lee when he's playing with Motley Crue where he lends the material this larger than life quality where he's like driving this massive tank, you know, mm -hmm. with, with each song. And you just don't get that. And, and maybe it's somewhat due to the types of songs that Nikki Six is writing. This is the first mm -hmm. album where he's really co-writing a lot of the songs with James Michael, who mm -hmm. will go on to uh, co-write lots of the songs on... Saints of Los Angeles, and also in um, 6 a.m. Mm -hmm. um, he's the main vocalist and main songwriter, co-writer with Nikki. Um, so I, I definitely feel that that as great as Randy is, and there's a great documentary about his life on Amazon Prime as, as well. We were just talking about how Amazon Prime is, is great for that. Um, I miss Tommy Lee on this record. I really do. 
I was going to say, I, I definitely miss Tommy Lee as well, but there's a couple of times on the record, I'll get to it, uh, where, you know, there's some Tommy Lee sort of, you know, touches that, you know, that Randy puts in, but, you know, we'll get to that later, but I agree, he's, he's missed on this record for sure. Yeah, and it, it's kind of a, a back-to-basics, back-to-their-roots kind of album. They're not they're not experimenting. Um, Vince Neil has said, we didn't want to waste time spending two weeks to get a snare sound or a guitar sound or anything like that. Um I agree with you about the mix of the record. I don't. I don't think it sounds that great. Um, I mean, it's one thing to not waste time to get uh, and worry too much about the sounds, but it's another thing to not take the time to make the record sound as good as it might. And yeah. I, I think, oddly enough, that is uh, especially true on the opening song, "Hell or High Heels," which considering it's the single from the record is a really muddy mix where you know you vince's vocals are kind of buried and Nick's guitar licks are kind of buried um the other shocking thing about this album in in general uh, before we move on to the songs is there's mm -hmm. so little information about mm -hmm. it like it it was out by the time motley Crue the dirt came out but they barely talk about recording it or any of the songs. Um, I couldn't find a single interview with Mike Klink where he talks oh. about working on this album, not a podcast, not a video interview, not a, you know, not a website. I mean, yeah, there's, there's a shocking dearth of information about the making of this record. But um, that said, let's, let's jump in this, this first song, hell on high heels, John. Uh, yeah, I wrote down a lot of great notes, which I, of course, forgot my notes, but it's um, it seems like they're trying to sort of write a classic Motley Crue song. Um, it's definitely got some pretty interesting turn of phrases, but it, isn't this the one how you make your money, honey? Is that it or is that on? Yes, that is the one. OK, yeah, that's kind of dumb. And I'm not even necessarily sure if the person is a... Um, stripper or you know what i mean it's it's kind of vague like i don't know what the story is behind it and like you said before the it's it's an opener and it's kind of weak um i do appreciate this is the album that mick mars comes back on so i definitely yeah. appreciate the guitar playing in it and it had a pretty strong riff to it but again totally i mean i feel bad about saying this but a pretty forgettable song i mean really not much there kind of cliched and I mean, I, I don't know. I don't get it. Like, I don't, under, I don't understand, like, for instance, why it looks that kill, which is still essentially the same sort of song, but it's not. It's so much better than this, you know? Like, I don't know. What does that have that that doesn't have? Well, maybe it's that riff, that down, you know what I mean? Or who knows, that rawness, who knows? So, yeah, uh, you know, again, nice riff from McMars, but nothing really that particularly stands out. Mike? I think this is one of the, you know, even though it's not, you know, strong in terms of, you know, their entire catalog, when you compare the actual song to the rest of the catalog, but I think in terms of this, this rap, this record or your CD or whatever you call it, this is one of the strongest tracks on the record. It's, it's a good opener, in my opinion. Um, it's a great, it, you know, it's a cool riff. Um, the riff itself reminds me of uh, a Black Crows tune from their debut album, uh, Shake Your Moneymaker. It's a song called Strut and Blues. It's the same kind mm. of chord structure, even though it's in a different key. Um, you know, it, I think the one thing that stands out too, we're talking about the mix. I think one thing that works on this record in terms of the mix is, is Nikki's bass sound. Like you can hear it. Yeah, Nikki's bass does cut through. That is that is true and 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 much better than some other Motley records for sure. Yeah, one you know particular point is um, that sort of you know transitional riff uh, at the end of the the verse. You know, it's classic. You know, Nikki Six writing and it, it's a great tone on his part. Um, you know. Think of what you will of the chorus. To me, it's it's catchy. It's hooky. You know, I I didn't necessarily I hadn't listened to this record probably since you know before debut and I went to see the tour. Uh, but when I revisited it, I thought, okay, now I remember this song. This is cool. I like I like this song. You know, it it kind of stuck with me. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're also talking about the mix and, and sounds. Um, you know, granted, you know, it's sort of a return to the, you know the classic Motley Crue you know approach to songwriting. But why is it that? A lot of the solos on this record remind me of uh, Bruce Kulick uh, revenge era tone and, and phrases and guitar licks, you know, it comes to soloing. 
Hmm. I could hear yeah. that. Yeah, give no. that a you know, give that a thought because there's a couple times where I'm like, oh, it sounds like something Bruce would do, you know, which which is absolutely a compliment. So, um, yeah, but, you know, to me, it, it's a good opener. Um, and I found it kind of funny on like a you know a musician note, like I guess you know the song ends on G, but Nikki hits like a, an F note at the end, right? It, it is this weird thing. It was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I heard that too. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. okay. Right. Which actually makes it a G seven chord, which you uh, know is actually you know <laughs> legit. I mean, he may have hit the wrong note, but that that could work right. too. Well, um, these guys are all they're all jazz players, right? You know, they yeah, yeah. potato. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so this riff, the song idea was something that the band had had for like 12 years. And then they were going back and they were listening to odds and ends and bits and pieces. Um, and they were going to put out, I guess they had a demo of this song from before that they were going to put out um, maybe on the the odds and ends album we referenced earlier. But they decided they liked the riff enough that they wanted to re-record it and put it on this record. Um, in, in, in terms of the subject matter, to me, you know, there is this thing where strippers in in the LA Hollywood hard rock scene, you know, they don't all necessarily have to become prostitutes, but they all eventually do to some degree or another. And I think that's kind of what this song is about. Uh, he recycles the lyric, she's an HIV VIP, which yeah. they had used on the previous album for She's a Beauty. Um, but yeah, there's some, a couple nice turns of phrase, a serpent's tongue calculating mind. Um, I, I like it, but again, I think it's only a strong song relatively compared to the rest of this album, not necessarily compared to their, their whole catalog. So yeah, it, it, it sounded good live too, you know, for sure. You know? Yeah. It's got some cool space to it. Yeah. Live. Um, all right, moving on. Treat me like the dog. I am. Uh, another, <laughs> again, I can't stop thinking about, uh, Iggy and the Stooges, you know what I mean? And they're, uh, you oh, know, yeah. I want to be your dog. Um, or I guess that's just Iggy. I don't know. At any rate, um, Stooges, yeah, yeah, it's that I wrote down. I seem to remember writing that I really like the riff a lot. The riff is super strong, um, but and I think it's uh, and I like the chorus, you know, with the you know the tree me, you know what I mean, with the ellipses in the in the between the words or whatever. I think that was pretty cool. Um, well, you know what I mean, the space between uh, singing. It was sort of very delivered, sort of punk rockish this is the first time that i heard sort of the real serious cheap trick um influence on it um mm -hmm. but again not not the super strong song not one that i'm going to go back and listen to good mike uh you know i agree it's definitely not one of the strongest songs in the record um but definitely i agree with you know the the, the opinion of the uh, the cheap trick influence um you know and the openness of, of the chorus in a way we've got like you know the counterpoint with you know the riff and, and the vocals that that works well um the a couple times on this record uh this is one of them where it, the production and some of the riffs reminded me of an album that came out a few years later by velvet revolver contraband oh, like that main okay. that main verse riff reminds me of something that it almost sounds like you know, sonically and also sounds you know, musically like a riff that would have been on that Velvet Revolver record in a way. Um, huh. You know, but overall, it's really not one of my favorite songs on the record. And, um, you know, in terms of like tones and guitar stuff, there's a cool like chorus sound in the bridge and the breakdown. Um, you know, the solos, you know, classic Nick with, you know, the pull-offs and some layering and stuff. It, it, but really, overall, it's really not, you know, if you want to compare it to the opening track, it's not as strong as the opening track. It, you know, I don't know. It's just, it wasn't that catchy or memorable and enjoyable you know from my perspective yeah there, there's a lyrical theme on this record that starts more or less with this song about uh humiliation and human degradation that <laughs> is a little hard to to get behind i mean these are supposed to be dominant males and i know that there is that whole cliche about the dominant males the one at the end of the day that likes to sit and get whipped and become a yeah. sub or whatever but i don't necessarily want to hear that from my rock star heroes that <laughs> <laughs> that's how they like right, exactly yeah you know uh, um but uh it's interesting it starts off with uh red rover red rover 
Yes. Uh, Dame Fortune, previous to this, we had a song called Red Rover, which for those of you who don't know, is a childhood game in which you have kids on either side that link arms right? Mm -hmm. And they form two human walls. And then what you do is you, you call somebody out on the other side and you say, Red Rover, Red Rover, we dare Mike to come over. And Mike has to try to see where he thinks the weakest point is going to be. And if he breaks through, then he's good. But if he doesn't break through the arms, then he becomes absorbed and he becomes a part of that team. And even I remember playing this game as a, as a a youth and before I was obviously even close to being in puberty, I realized that just on a purely psychological level, there was a kind of pseudo sexual component to this game, which is like, you know, if you want to run into the pretty girls that are on the other side and be on their side, all you have to do is not try to get through so hard. And, mm -hmm. and so I think it's interesting that, that, uh, Nikki picked up on that, that the whole subtext of that child's game and put it in the lyrics to this one. Wow. I didn't get that at all, but okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really nice read on it. I wouldn't, um, I just thought it was more dog imagery. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the way I took it as <laughs> yeah. red Rover, red Rover, but uh, still. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All he needs is a never uh, dare me to do anything lyric and he's, he's got it covered, you know? That's so. right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So, new tattoo. I believe my note read, bullshit country love song, I hate this. <laughs> so that's all I got. I'm sorry. I mean, I know that's mean or whatever, and I'm trying to pick stuff out. And I kept, I, I, I probably listened to this album at least six or seven times, probably even more than that. Um, and I just, every time it would come on, I was just like, I cannot listen to me and the boys were drinking last night. You know what I mean? I mean, I understand the idea of like, you know, I'm going to memorialize you forever with a new tattoo, but it seems to be, it seems so cliche ridden and just nothing really there. So I really just didn't like it. Um, so Mike, tell me why it was good. I can't do that, John. Oh, uh, dang, Mike. <laughs> you have one job, Mike. <laughs> well, no, let me tell you, if, if we were rating a, um, you know, a poison record, then I would I would probably have some praise for, for this song. Uh, to me, it sounds like something would have been on, on a Poison record in a way, you know, with the, the you know the acoustic guitar and the the silly, you know, uh, you know lyric uh, theme, and and the major you know scale soloing and stuff. It is kind of you know wannabe country, you know, whatever. I don't know. It, it, to me, this does not sound like a Motley Crue song. Like you could do like acoustic stuff, like on. Um, don't go away mad, you know, that, that works. That, that sounds like Motley Crue. It almost sounds like Mata Hoople in a way, but it still sounds like Motley Crue. This to me sounds like they just want to write a song that sounds like somebody else. And this is what you got. I, 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 I couldn't stand it. And it, to the point where I thought who was singing that first line of the verse? Cause it doesn't even sound like Vince singing. Mm. It no, sounds it, like Vince aping another person's voice. It just doesn't stand out. It sounds like a, it sounds like they're trying to write a hit. And then the fact that they named the album after this song, and then isn't this the single from the album? It you was know? a single, the second yeah. single. Yeah, yeah so I it strikes so. me as if they were like, man, I don't know. I wish I could crawl inside of these heads, you know, because I don't have any hit songs. So obviously yeah. I have no idea what works. You know what I mean? But um, like, what, what were they thinking that they're like, yeah, this is our strongest song. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, maybe it was this was in 97, 98 that it came out. It came out in 2000. OK, yeah. so this is this is absolutely the death of grunge has beaten everything. And we're into like um, EPMD or whatever. So I don't know. Or EMD yeah, or whatever the, they call it. Yeah. The power ballad was definitely a, a thing of the past. At yeah. Point, you know? OK. Yeah, so but, I don't you know, know. Let me say let me say this though too, just in terms of the the, the lyric um, approach. You know, I don't know what woman would want to get a call from a guy in the middle of the night when he's out with his friends drinking. Hey, what is your excuse for calling me? I just got a new tattoo with your, your name on my arm or whatever. You know, okay, great. When are you coming home? What are you doing? You know, you tell me what woman would be happy to get that call. Yeah, can't think of one. You know? Um, we should experiment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trouble. That's <laughs> trouble. The one thing that I, I think elevates this song for me is the line, I could be your Dorian Gray, right? Okay. Which 
is a reference to a novel by Oscar Wilde, The Picture of Dorian Gray, which is about this kind of so bad he's good, you love to hate him, um, decadent character who corrupts everybody that he touches and seduces them and never ages because there is a portrait in his attic of him and the portrait ages, but through some sort of dark magic, he doesn't. So he's this kind of, you know, dandy, uh, wicked man that all the women want to bed and, you know, most of the men too. And, um, and I think Nikki's talking about the fact that he, you know, looks pretty good for his age and heroin's a preservative or whatever, but, <laughs> but also the fact that, uh, that he's drawing a parallel between himself and glam rock and, De the whole decadent movement of people like Oscar Wilde, which they also point out in the movie Velvet Goldmine, that there's sort of this direct uh -huh. line between guys like uh, Oscar Wilde and David Bowie and whatnot. So if for mm -hmm. no other reason than this song has that line, and I think it elevates the song and makes it much more interesting. If it didn't have that line, I would agree with you guys. There's not much to chew on here. So Yeah, God bless you, David, for finding that, because I don't even think I... I would even bother listening to that line. So, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think they tucked it away in the second verse, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you, get, you had to wait for it. <laughs> That's about the time I'm going, just hit skip. Just hit skip. It's, it's right. all right. You can hit skip. All right. Drag Strip Superstar. I actually really like this song. It sounds very cheap trick. Um, I mean, I, I love that sort of 70s. Um, I mean, it sounds like almost like it sounds like Cheap Trick, the Knack, something like that. Sort of a very uh, power poppy. It's obviously a little more distorted guitars, a little heavier. Um, you know, I like the I mean, you know, you can't go wrong with a woman as car metaphor song, um, even though it's completely sexist and horrible. Um, but the concept of like, you know, I'm interested in the use of drag strip superstar. Is that like saying there's some sort of model or some sort of, they just, they live in the fast, you know, living uh, fast life, um, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, I, ha it seems to be just basically metaphors between uh, about cars and women. Um, and it's interesting. Vince was, I guess, racing cars at this point. Is that still true? Was he still doing it? Um, but it's actually, I hate to say this, probably one of my favorite songs on the album just because it's so catchy and so sort of poppy and uh, fun. So I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, it's one of my favorites, actually. All right, good, Mike. Okay, wow. I, I appreciate that, John, because uh, from the cheap trick perspective, I, I now appreciate this song in a way that I didn't before. Um, you know, the, catch, the, the chorus is definitely catchy. It's a catchy melody. It's, it's upbeat. It's kind of fun in that way. It's, it, to me, it's not really, you know, the strongest song in the record. It's not one of my favorites, um, but now, you know, listen to, you know, to your perspective and I'll give it another listen. Um, you know, first I thought with the intro, I thought, oh, is that a motorcycle or a car? What's going on here? We're going back to Girls Go With Girls. That's, you know, a slight twist on, okay, it's a drag strip thing and it's, a, it's actual, you know, you know, hot rod or race car, whatever you're going to call it. Um, yeah, overall, the the solo again it reminds me of, of Bruce Kulick in a great way, um, but it it also reminds me of a band that Dave you introduced me to when I first moved here, a band uh, named Czar in a way. And they, mm. they had songs like you know Kathy Fong is the bomb. They had these catchy choruses you know that stuck with you you know, and it was one of those bands that never really you know rose to the level that they should have, but they were good at writing catchy melodies and catchy choruses. So. For me, it, it's fun to hear records and go, oh, this reminds me of that. And I pull other things out and revisit those records. So this whole thing is a process and so much fun. This song was an example of that. But again, not the strongest song of the record. I think it's not one of my top three on the record, but you know, it, it's okay. But definitely I see the cheat trick influence, John. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, some of this, these songs are lyrically a little interchangeable. I mean, this some of this, these lyrics you could put with uh, Hell on High Heels, too. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. we're talking about some model slash stripper or whatever. Um, there's a funny video online where they're working on this song in the studio, and Nikki Six calls up James Michael, and he's asking him about a guitar part that 
uh, James had played on the demo and uh, he wants to know how it's, you know, how it went and, you know, and, and if he could sing it to Mick so that Mick could play it. And then James hears it and he, and he says, well, you know, I think on the demo we modulated up, you know, and, and, um, and Nikki six, uh, says, oh yeah, we went up a key, didn't we? And, 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 and he goes, yeah, but we didn't just transpose it. We actually changed the part. So he sings it and he goes, but I don't think that part would work over this part now. And he goes, okay, okay, thanks. And he hangs up and Nikki goes, but I still want to hear it. You know, <laughs> it's just, it's interesting to get a little insight into the, the whole process of putting it together. And then I think, yeah. you know, Mike, Mike Klink's attitude about it is like, oh, well, you know, we're adding little guitar parts on the outros of all these songs. Like this could be the one song that we don't do that, you know, and, and Nick mm -hmm. is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, but I still want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Life is a negotiation. You know? It is. It yeah. is. First band on the moon. Okay, so my genius movie script that I've been off and on writing since I was probably out of college was the first band to tour the moon, okay? And I okay. keep starting the script and I never finish it, but it's, you know, they have to go up there. It was part of, um, you know, they have to go through several colonies to play. And of course, there's some sort of moon separatist organization that kidnaps the band and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so... I actually, again, really like this song because one, it reminds me of that idea I had. Um, it's an interesting story song. Again, sounds a lot like got a sort of power poppy cheap trick kind of vibe to it. Um, and, you know, the, the opening chorus about, you know, having to escape women in miniskirts and whatever they say about women on earth and that kind of stuff. Um, it gets a little cheesy when they say one small step for man, but I actually kind of <laughs> like this song a lot. But then again, I think my idea is super smart too. So I don't know. So, Hey, anybody listening to the podcast, don't steal my idea or call me. We can co-write it. There you go. Right. <laughs> there <we> go. <laughs> Cause I get, I get to the first act and then I never know where to go. Cause I never know. Like, is the band a washed up band? Like a, you know, a band that's uh, you know, gets its first gig and this is its big comeback. Or is it like a small time band that's willing to take the risk to go and for the moon? You know? Ah, I see. Yeah, you guys don't care. Whatever. Carry on. Go ahead, Mike. <laughs> well, looking forward to, to seeing that production, John. You gotta right, get, get it going, you know. No, I I the yeah, the chorus is, is for sure catchy, it's memorable. Um again, you know, first band on the moon, it, it, it's a target goal, nobody's done it yet, you know. It, you know, it, it, it's it's clever, I like it. Um Again, more, you know, Bruce Kulick-ish, you know, Revenge Era soloing in a way. Again, you know, Grand Mick is his own man. He's his own guitar player. Um, that main riff and that verse, so that Wawa is like super heavy and yeah. super driving. That's great. Uh, but also, too, with the intro, I had mentioned, you know, Velvet Revolver. When I first revisited the CD, it reminded me of uh, the single release from, again, the Velvet Revolver um, debut record, uh, the song called Slither. It's almost like Velvet Revolver heard this song and thought, if we need an intro for this song, let's go to that. Mm. If you listen to them, they sound sonically the same, kind of the same you know, key. It, it, it hit me in a way. So Interesting. Yeah. Again, still not my favorite. I've got you know, three songs on this record that I really, really like. This isn't one of them. But um, again, thanks, John. You know, the Cheap Trick thing is something that now you know, is clear to me, and I've got a new perspective on, on the rest of the record. So thanks. I hear that cheap trick all over it. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but it's, yeah. it's all over this. And it's very, it's sort of like they take cheap trick songs and then over distort the guitars, which makes it Motley Crue because you have the Mick Mars guitar sound. And, but it's very power poppy. You know what I mean? Just, yeah. The problem is, is it's filtered through Motley Crue. So it's, it's actually kind of an interesting sound. I don't know if it's their sound. I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, I like it. It's a fun song. It's super catchy. I mean, it's, it's, it's just kind of unapologetically goofy. And um, I, 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 I like the reference, you know, like, a, 
like a rock and roll cartoon, right? Because that was the criticism that had been leveled at the band is that you guys mm. are like this cartoon or whatever, but they are also the band that's been ahead of the curve and gone where nobody else has gone before, or at least they were for a time. So where else can they go but the moon, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> even if we're out of tune, which, you know, is again, sort of a self-reflexive comment because Vince has been known to <sighs> not always sing perfectly in tune. I think it's fair to say when he's performing live. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it is a little disturbing to hear a band like Motley Crue, however, complain about the girls on Earth not being willing to yeah. uh, put out. I mean, I, you know, I mean, yeah. Jesus, if if these guys are having trouble getting laid, what chance do us mere mortals have? But, you know, especially when you know any one of these guys could walk into any strip club in America and pull something out. So, you know, yeah. I, I don't I don't want to hear them complain about that. Um but I like the song. Can I, well, can, before we move on to the next song, can I go back to John's point about Cheap Trick? Yeah, the cool thing that with the, the Cheap Trick approach is you've got you know catchy melodies and stuff, but then you have like those weird like you know dissonant riffs. Like it's almost like a flat fifth kind of thing, which uh, reminds me of the song like Heaven Tonight. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there's that kind of it, it's a, it's a great melody, but then you have like these weird chord changes and stuff. So you know, for sure, I'm sure these guys. You saw Cheap Trick as, as an influence and, you know, utilize some of that stuff you know, for, for the songwriting. I mean, now that now I want to go back and listen to everything and see how much of that sort of power pop vibe is really in there. It's definitely on Too Fast for Love, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she Needs Rock and Roll. Uh, I, I, again, it was, it was fine, um, but I don't really... It starts with that cool little psychedelic uh, guitar part, right? Is that in there? And mm-hmm. then, um, mm-hmm. um, so it sort of harkens back to sort of that, like, I, of course, immediately go to, you know, the uh, rock and roll by Lou Reed, you know, Saved by Rock and Roll and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And it has that sort of also sort of 60s, 70s vibe to it um, that is okay. But again, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't really stand out to me as a, it seems pretty cliche written. You know what I mean? Girl leaves hometown to see the big city lights and the thing that keeps her going is rock and roll. You know, a little cliche written. I like the guitar parts. Again, I like Nick Mars' playing, but it doesn't super stand out to me. So go ahead, Mike. Yeah, nothing uh, it really stood out to me in terms of, you know, this being a memorable song uh, lyrically or, you know, melodically. But uh, the things that really stood out to me was uh, that the effect that you mentioned at the beginning, John, is a thing called a univibe, uh, which is an effect that uh, Jimi Hendrix made popular. It's um, on his uh, version of the Star Spangled Banner from the Woodstock soundtrack and some other, you know, stuff of his, of his late you know, career, if you want to call it that. Uh, but it, Again, from a guy that owns several Univibe clone pedals, like this is this sounds like a real Univibe. Like I want that pedal. I want to hear this. It, it, I, I, it was such a tease. That was such a great tone. Give me more of it, you know. But no, <laughs> it's, you know. So. Uh, but on that subject too, uh, from a guitar player's perspective, a lot of the stuff that Nick's doing in the solo and throughout the song is is a real like uh, Stratocaster kind of tone, which is absolutely appropriate for you know the Hendrix Univibe tone. Um, you know, again, it's really not that memorable of a song in a way, um, but I thought, you know, things that stood out to me in terms of their approach to songwriting, I thought the breakdown was, you know, classic crew. Um, you know, it, yeah, you know, I like the, I, I like the piano at the end. It was an interesting way to sort of fade out the song, but overall, it's just really not that memorable of a, of a song overall. Yeah, it, it's catchy. It's fun. It's, it's strikes me as it's sort of a, catchier more fun rewrite of the song rock and roll junkie from decade Mm. of decadence um so i like it but again the lyrics are sort of disposable and you're right to a certain degree cliche i mean there's that song fallen angel by poison that essentially talks about you know (laughs) the same i mean you know yeah the, the cliche about the the young innocent girl who comes out and is corrupted uh by life in los angeles is has been done to death and 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 yeah this is another example of that so yeah rolling the dice of her life right right punched in the teeth by love uh, the I I again I don't have my notes here with me, but I remember really liking the riff to it, but mm-hmm. that was about it. 
it didn't really stand out to me that much um, as a song, kind of a silly, um, silly song again, a little more power poppy, um, but uh, didn't really stand out, doesn't, doesn't hold up to me. Go ahead, Mike. This is one of my favorite songs on the record. No um, kidding, it, really? It, okay. Yeah, it, it's really catchy to me. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying you know, it's great in terms of, you know, uh, lyrics, but um, I remember hearing this song live and just thinking it absolutely kicked ass. Um, huh. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's cool. But yeah, I think, one, you know, as much as I liked the song when it came out and I liked it, you know, seeing it live, when I listened to it this week, it reminded me of um, the band The Four Horsemen. Okay. And if you like this song, you really like the song Rockin' Is My Business because it's the same kind of riff. Dun, 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 dun. Right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Rockin' Is My Business. Business is good. I mean, it, you could almost play both songs at the same time. It's the same tempo, same kind of chord changes. Great chord changes. However, they're really similar. But it, again, this is one of my favorite songs on the record. Um, I'm not saying it's, it's a ripoff or you either one was influenced by one another. But it, to me, this song stands out as one of the stronger tracks on the record. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I remember listening to it live and and liking the way that it, it sounded live. Um, I mean, lyrically, I think definitely in the Hollywood scene, there, there was uh, the space for young, good-looking women to be just shockingly promiscuous uh, and just as promiscuous as any of the men. And and God forbid you should develop any feelings for one of them if, if, if she was that type of girl, because uh, you would definitely feel that you were punched in the teeth by love. And so... <laughs> um, Hollywood ending. Uh, kind of cliched, another attempt at a power ballad. Um, I, I mean, I kind of like the turn at the end, you know what I mean? Where it's like, it's all right. It wasn't a Hollywood ending or something like that. You know what I mean? I think that's kind of a neat idea. Um, this was another one that I kept wanting to sort of skip. It didn't really stand out to me. Um, again, I'm, I'm really interested in the whole way that, um, Motley Crue continues to fetishize Hollywood. You know what I mean? I mean, they just, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. all the time. Hollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood. You know, and I mean, um, <clears throat> which is fine. You know what I mean? So that's their, that's their thing. But um, I'm, you know, I'm, I just, I just wish there was more to it. You know what I mean? Hmm. Like some sort of, because I like the idea of them constantly thinking about Hollywood and Hollywood endings and movies, but maybe throw in some more references to other movies or something like that. I don't know. It just doesn't stand out to me. It just seems like sort of a cliched um, attempt at a power ballad. Good, Mike. Yeah, definitely. Uh, sort of, you know, I shouldn't say lame, but you know, just another attempt at a power ballad. It, you know, it doesn't sound like Motley Crue to me. It doesn't sound like something they would write. Um, it's going to make me now revisit the stuff that's on 6 a.m. to see, you know, where things go from here, because it's been years since I listened to the 6 a.m. stuff. But to John's point about the romanticizing Hollywood thing, you know, I, I love that about Motley Crue. But now it's going to make me revisit listening to artists like Joe Grishecki, who you know, would sing songs about like, you know, it's Friday night, you know, I'm going to party and, you know, the steel mills are closing and what are we going to do? And, you know, like that bothers the, the, the crap out of me. Like, I don't want to hear that. But, you know, I love when Motley Crue romanticizes Hollywood. But, you know, when somebody's going to lament about, oh, you know, life is, you know, so hard as a blue collar worker in, in, you know, Western Pennsylvania, like, come on. Like, we live that, you know. I, it's, but anyhow, they're all artists. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll compare the two. But uh, I, I don't mind that you know, when Motley Crue does that kind of thing. But to me, this is, this is not a Motley Crue song. This is like just power ballad fluff that doesn't really belong to the record. They, you know. And I think from a musician perspective, the coolest thing I heard in terms of tones, there's like a very, uh, the cult, uh, firewoman, 12 string and chorus, you know, in the breakdown, which is cool mm-hmm. to me. I mean, you know, tones are all about, you know, building structure and texture and, you know, and writing songs. It, you know, that was the funnest part about the song for me. You know, but everything else is, I, it, it's not one of the strongest tracks in the record. Okay. 
I agree with John. I like the concept. Um, it's almost a callback to from Home Sweet Home, the lines, you, you know that I've seen too many romantic dreams up in lights falling off the silver screen, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that there's something to the whole idea that uh, listening to Motley Crue or a band like Guns N' Roses in Hollywood, they definitely, mm -hmm. there is something special about that connection. Um, just like if you listen to the Led Zeppelin records or Black Sabbath records in England, or you listen to, uh, you know, the early Kiss records in New York City, you know, yeah. you can feel that connection between the, the place and the environment. But but yes, Motley Crue definitely fetishizes the whole uh, Hollywood scene to the point where we all grew up thinking this was like mm -hmm. Disneyland for hard rock musicians and couldn't wait to get out here and experience it for ourselves. <laughs> fake uh this is actually one of my favorite songs on the album just because it did veers off with its um uh subject matter the whole mm -hmm. concept of um you know them saying f you to the record company or whatever and at first i thought it was them making fun of themselves referring to themselves as being fake and then mm -hmm. a few more listens i'm pretty solid that it's just them calling you know, record companies and fair weather fans is fake. Um, I just, um, I don't, I like the riff. I like the, you know, we stand up for who we are. We don't, you know, 40 million records or whatever they say. And, you know, haven't uh, never won a Grammy. We don't play by the rules. You know, that's, that's <laughs> solid Motley Crue, you know, songwriting right there. Um, <clears throat> making fun of the, you know, the guys, the fat cats that are taking advantage of them flushing their money down the toilet, that kind of stuff. So at least I like it because it veers off of this, the regular subject matter on the album. Um, again, doesn't, I'm probably not going to go back and listen to this song. You know, it's not going to be one of my favorites. So, but still, I mean, definitely a much more interesting song. Mike. Yeah. I like the, uh, the sort of Motley Crue, you know, shouting kind of vocals that happen throughout the song. Um, I, it's, it's an appropriate song in light of, you know, what happened with them being dropped by the label, you know, so sort of a, you know, a reactionary kind of thing. Uh, you know, I think the, the subject matter is more interesting than the song itself in a way. Um, but, you know, I like the fact that, you know, somebody's going to, it seems real to me. It seems like a band that went through something and this is their experience with it. And this is their reaction. And they're trying to you know, deal with a, a twist with it. I, you know, I, I like it. Again, it's not one of my favorite songs on the record, but it's stronger than, stronger than most on the record. Yeah. This is my favorite song on the record, I think. Okay. Um, okay. And I think, John, it's it's got to be both, right? Because the whole chorus is, you know, looks like I'm fake, just like you. Um, mm. And Yeah, yeah, I that's think, the vibe I get to, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's a really an interesting take uh, because... I think Nikki Six is very conscious and self-conscious and has been uh, about the band's image and the discrepancy between that image and who they actually are. Um, one of the, the first interviews I ever saw with them um, it was, I think, a back page of Hit Parader, one, one page article, and they were talking about how... Um, they had this reputation of being bad boys and some people were saying that it was all just image, you know, and he was saying, well, we are the extremely real thing, you know, uh, we're the, we're the band that, you know, your parents warned you about or whatever. Um, and, and yet there, there is that thing, right? I mean, that the, 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 the people that are the real deal, like the real tough guys and the real, the real guys that are really the hardcore are usually the people that don't have an artistic bone in their body yeah. and end up dead, right? So, I mean, you know, yeah. like you always have to qualify that with a caveat of like, yeah, they're, they're, they're not fake, they're the real thing for a musician who has <laughs> who is expressing themselves creatively in in that arena and i think you could say the same thing about gangster rappers and all that stuff too yeah. you know i mean they're not just pure criminals but you know they are everybody is real to a point and just not beyond that point and i think the fact that this song sort of points that out makes it one of the more interesting songs on the record 
Okay. Porno star. Um, kind of funny one-off, but really don't really care about it. Um, I mean, I, I get it. You know, I mean, it's kind of interesting that it came out in 2000. Um, well before the, you know, super porn internet explosion, I guess. Um, but it doesn't really, um, you know, whatever. I don't want to hear a song like this. This song, you know what I mean? I, I just didn't want to, I don't want to hear, you know, some sort of your take on the problems of internet porn, you know, or your problem with internet porn or, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, you know what I mean? I just don't really, you know, <laughs> so it's an interesting artifact, I guess, but it's, I, I sometimes, sometimes bands when they do these like totally up to the minute commentary songs just kind of fail, you know? Mm. Um, well, but, as Oscar Wilde has said, the danger of being mo too modern is one is apt to grow old fashioned quite suddenly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I like the, um, I mean, again, the riff is really strong. I remember the song starting and being like, oh yeah, and then nothing, you know? So it just, it just didn't really do it for me. So good, Mike, what do you think? I mean, you know, one of the cool things about the song is the intro. It reminds me of the, the intro to Girls, Girls, Girls. It's the same kind of tone, same key. I mean, it, it draws you in, but then when you really get into it and you start listening to lyrics, you know, I know I mentioned it before, but there's a great documentary, again, on Velvet Revolver, where they were auditioning singers and throwing song ideas at guys and saying, give me what you got, you know, write some lyrics. And some guy came back with a song called Stripper Girl. And then when they heard the demo, they're sitting around, you know, without the singer in the room, and they're like, Stripper Girl, really? Like we wouldn't have written a song called Stripper Girl back when you know in 1985. You know, this is 2004. What are you doing? You know, this is. I don't know. Yes, you know, Motley Crue. If anybody could write a song, you know, called Porno Girl, it would be Motley Crue. But I don't know. It's kind of cliche in a way for me. I didn't really, I didn't really dig it, and I also didn't. There's sort of that annoying like na na na, you know, in, in the song. That just, it just, I don't know. I, I didn't enjoy it. You know, I. I Again, not one of my favorite songs in the record. That na 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 was the only thing that I actually kind of liked about the song. But <laughs> uh, okay. So now I understand it is kind of annoying too. So, all right, go ahead, Dave. Sorry. I also think it takes a kind of a weird uh, turn on the outro when it gets into this. When I grow up, I want to be just like you, just like you. Um, it doesn't really have anything to do with the rest of the song. And mm. then this piano part comes in and it gets a little weirdly pretentious. And to me, it's almost like Nikki Six didn't really have full faith in the song in and of itself. And he's like, well, maybe we can just take, take this and twist it and take it to some weird artsy place on the outro. And that'll, that'll help. And, you know, it doesn't really help it no. just it just gets weird so all right final song on the record uh cover of the tubes white punks on dope okay just for the fact that this made me go back and listen to the tubes again um i like this song i and i actually it's one of my favorite songs on the album but i did go back and have to listen to the tubes one and then wound up listening to the entire tubes album that it's on which is a complete bizarro trip down somewhere i don't even you know what i mean it's actually that first tubes album is fantastic um mm -hmm. that has this song on it um but it's definitely it's I, I i love it i like how they sort of update it and, you know distort it up and that kind of stuff but it's definitely a very cool um cover good one of the best choices i think motley crew has ever made in terms of making a cover probably the best uh yeah you know version to do because it's not a particularly super well-known song but at the same time it is known i mean i knew i've probably heard it maybe six or seven times before i heard this cover in my entire life you know what i mean and definitely you know definitely very well done i, I liked it a lot actually mike go ahead i i love it too john i think it's a great choice in terms of the cover song um you know they've always been you know pretty good at you know picking cover songs that would that would work thematically for the band i think it's a great subject matter for a band that's from los angeles um you know the i remember in terms of the original i remember hearing um going out to, to clubs with dave when i first moved here and hearing this song in venues being played by djs and i thought oh, i never really heard this song and then, you know also do i think molly's played this song as like their their warm-up music before they were going on stage on a couple of tours right 
Possibly, I don't know. I, I believe they did, yeah. But it, it's it's almost like a song that they would write, you know, which yeah. is really you know, the ultimate thing that you know to do in terms of approaching a cover song. I, I think it's great. And again, it, like you said, John, it maybe uh, revisit the tooth as well. And it's just a great song, period. But they did a great a great version of it. I love it. This is definitely one of the top three, in my opinion, of songs in the CD. Yeah, you remember "She's a Beauty" and how you couldn't get away from that song on DVE, in like an yeah, '84 is, or whatever. And it's yeah. totally different than that song, but still is yeah. actually a stand-up song. Like I was actually kind of I I went totally down the tubes rabbit hole for a day. Yeah. So yeah, and who does who do, you gotta love the name Fee Waybill, the singer? Like, right? Yeah, yeah, a exactly. Great name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, it was pretty cool. Yeah, it it does hit all of the 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 points lyrically that kind of mar- would mark it as a Motley Crue song, though. Everything from, mm-hmm. you know, um, the the rebellion and the snotty attitude and Hollywood and the the drugs and uh, the existential angst and self destructiveness and. Uh, and even loneliness, you know, as mm-hmm. an overriding theme that's that's in a lot of Motley Crue songs. So, yeah, I do think it's a, a great cover and it sounded great when they did it on this tour. Mm-hmm. So speaking of this tour. Oh, wait, we, hold we, on. We She's this, a Beauty okay. is actually a song about a stripper. Is it possible that the tubes are actually Motley Crue mm. in disguise? <laughs> it's ah. really, I mean, I really want to start going down there because I think the tubes actually influence that power pop sound that you know that cheap trick power pop you know tubes sound i think that really did influence them more than we realized sorry go ahead carry on Dave. well no let, let me let me just wrap up you know john's thing about you know bands of, of that, that era because uh not in addition to the tubes you know bands that were successful uh in, in you know on different levels but particularly in the 80s uh revisit some of the golden earring stuff you know because mm. you know even though they had hit, hits like radar love a lot of their stuff you know, that was released prior to that is really worth you know checking out as well. So you know, yeah, 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 agreed, agreed. I am a big fan of uh, them as well. That's cool. Yeah, good point, Mike. Carry on. <laughs> Back to Dave. Okay. Tour. Yeah. So I was just gonna say. So that so the band puts this album out and doesn't really sell that well, unfortunately. I mean, the last two studio albums had both at least gone gold. This sells, you know, 200 and some thousand copies in the States. Now, granted, albums in general are starting to sell less well than they used to, especially hard rock records. But uh, the band goes on tour, co-headlining tour with Megadeth, which in some ways is kind of an odd choice. Um, but when, at least in Los Angeles, they play, um, the Universal Amphitheater Mm -hmm. and I think they probably sold it out. So, you know, that place holds 6,500, you know, somewhere in, in that ballpark, which is more people than they were playing to Mm -hmm. on either the Generation Swine tour or, uh, the Karabi tour. Mm -hmm. So even though the album is selling less than half of the last studio album, I think it, the, the one effect that it did have is, is for the people that were still fans of the band, it kind of reassured them that, that what they were going to get if they went to see Motley Crue live was what they were expecting and not some kind of artsy experimental industrial kind of thing. Yeah, or or band you know that, that you liked, and all of a sudden had a different singer. You know, it sounded completely different, like they did on, on the you know, self titled record. Yeah, yeah. So, what were your memories of the show, Mike? I I was so excited to go because I I just moved here to Los Angeles, and uh, when I heard that you know you and I would be able to go see Motley Crue in their hometown, Universal Amphitheater. I'd never been to Universal Amphitheater. You know, seeing Motley in their hometown would, would seem like a great idea to me. I know I they sounded killer. Um, you know, I had a blast and I have a funny story about not necessarily about the show, but what happened when I got home after this show, because obviously you like to have fun at shows once in a while and that I did that night. Um, and at the time I was living with a girl that I moved here with and she had, um, invited her sister-in-law out. I guess they're going to go do some shopping the next day. And I committed, you know, wisely to, you know, to take part in that. Well, you know, good, good, good God. By the time I got home, you know, I, I you know, had a few beers at the show and I was pretty tired. <clears throat> So I was in no condition to get up in the morning and go shopping. But in addition to that, this is the first night that my, my girlfriend at the time, uh, her sister-in-law was visiting. She was here the first night. 
the people who lived upstairs for me at the time were, were two girls and some guy like came into the apartment complex, put a ladder up to the second floor window, was banging on the, the window. Rosie, let me in, you know, because I heard him trying to bang on the door on the other side of the apartment. And all of a sudden he goes to the alley. I'm like, what in the hell? I wish I wanted some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So then, you know, I, I can only imagine what my girlfriend at the time, uh, what her sister-in-law thought, because, my God, you know, here comes Mike, you know, rumbling in, you know, after we're going to see Motley Crue in, in their hometown. Some guy's trying to break into the apartment upstairs. You know, I need to get the hell out of here probably. So I didn't see any of them for a couple of days after that. I was in the doghouse. Okay. I had a hell of a great time at the show, and I have no regrets about having a good time at the show. And my girl at the time and I have long since broke up, so I'm in a better place, and I had a great time at the show. It ruled. See Motley in their hometown. I, 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 was, I was into it. It was killer. Loved it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember they, they had kind of an interesting stage set up, too, where they had uh, sort of a mini uh, tattoo parlor and a mini kind <laughs> of strip club thing. And then the band obviously was, you know, playing it in the Hollywood club or whatever. So yeah. it was like this, this the theme of it was to sort of recreate Hollywood, talking about fetishizing Hollywood, except yeah. in this case, they were actually playing in Hollywood. So it was kind of meta on top of meta. Um, <laughs> But uh, but it was it was a fun show. I mean, obviously, unfortunately, Randy Castillo. Mm -hmm. This is when he had severe health problems, and it was discovered that he had terminal cancer. Um, what turned out to be terminal cancer. Uh, yeah. So they they had the drummer from Hole, yeah. and uh, and I thought she played fine. You know, it was interesting to see her play. Uh, to see any girl play in, in a band like Molly Crew, but you know, she more than held held it down. I thought. Yeah. And cool too. On a related note, Dave, you and I went to see the uh, Randy Castillo tribute show at, at the Key Club uh, not long after this, and that was a great show too, man. You had like guys like Ronnie Montrose playing, um, you know, what became Velvet Revolver. You know, you had mm -hmm. Duff and Slash and, and Matt, and I think at the time it was Keith and uh, Josh from Buck Sherry. You know, which you know might have been on the roster for uh, Velvet Revolver, and it was just a, you know, again a great night. And talk about just like celebrating with your heroes in a small venue, you know, Universal is a small venue. It's a great, was a great venue. Too bad it's gone. Uh, obviously Key Club's no longer there, but you know, that's when you appreciate, you know, making the effort to move to Los Angeles and go see things like this. You know, yeah. Because those are those one-off things that the rest of the world isn't going to get to see. Granted these days with YouTube and cell phones, you can see everything. But back then, you know, if you weren't there in the moment, you, you missed out and you know, you, you appreciated being, being able to, to, you know, to sort of take part in those, in those types of events. Yeah, and Randy was clearly well-loved and admired and respected by the rock community, both locally and, and nationally. And that was, yeah. that was certainly very clear um, by, by way of that concert, how much uh, he meant to people and how much they loved him. So, yeah. all right, final thoughts. Uh, nothing really to add. I mean, it's just this isn't an album that I'm going to go back and visit again you know what i mean um maybe drag strip superstar just for its catchy chorus but or as like a weird oddity of you know a fun song but um nothing really stands out to me again i i do go back to your idea of there's like a blanket over the speakers uh it definitely just doesn't sound right it doesn't have the old school hooks that i love from motley crew um but on the flip side it's not terrible you know, I haven't, you know, it's not like a complete mess of an album. Um, so I don't know. I'd, I'd give it a C, you know, I guess is the best way to put it. The gentleman C. <laughs> Mike? Yeah, I, I agree. Definitely a gentleman C in terms of uh, a grade. Uh, but interestingly enough, I think it starts off strong. My favorite songs on the record are, you know, Helen High Heels and also, you know, granted they didn't write the song, uh, White Punks on Dope. Um, but I, you know, just, just going through the process is fun. Now I'm going to revisit, you know, the Tubes catalog. I only have a few things. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to get the catalog. I'm going to check it out. Um, again, it was fun just to revisit the record and realize that I really had such a great time seeing them live on this tour. Um, and from a songwriter perspective, you know, if you really want to inspire yourself to write some songs, get a guitar that's, you know, in a different tuning that you're not used to, you know, like think standard tuning 440, but then pick up a, a guitar that's tuned open G. You're going to write all kinds of stuff. I'm definitely going to get to the point where I have a, a guitar dedicated to being tuned down a whole, a whole step in D. Because uh -huh. there's something about that sound, you know, and I want to write heavier stuff, not like, you know, thrash metal or whatever, but like, you know, if you want to sound heavy, you do the tune down thing like Black Sabbath did, like Van Halen, you know, Kiss. 
there's there's going to be something to that. I'm going to delve into that, and I'm looking forward to seeing where that takes me. Okay. And again, it just the overall podcast with the Motley thing, but particularly once I heard Hell in High Heels, I thought, you know, it's almost like it's open G, but it's not. So you know, it's technical, but it, it, I'm I'm going to investigate that. We'll see what I come up with. Okay. Yeah, I I, I think this album, um, sounds kind of natural for them. Like they're not trying too hard. They're not chasing trends. They're not trying to be something that they're not, um, which arguably they were on the, on the two records before this. Um, but uh, at the same time, I, I acutely miss Tommy Lee uh, on this yeah. record. There's something about his absence that makes some of the songs on this album sound small. You know, where I think if he was drumming, they might sound epic and and they just they just don't quite get there. But I do think that there's there's still a lot of interesting creativity at work on this album. It may not have resulted in any classic songs that I, I would be itching to hear them play live again. But, you know, they're, they're still doing some cool and interesting things and going places where other bands aren't going. And for, for that, I think it's, it's, this album is definitely still worth a listen. So we will be back next week to talk about the last full-length Motley Crue album, Saints of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm.